Let me just say out of the gate that today and, uh, and next week is going to be a little bit different. Today's not really a, a sermon. It's more like a talk. And then next week when you leave, um, your, your jaw is going to be on the ground because we're going to do a couple things that we've never done before and it's going to... Obl- In fact, next week is going to be so amazing, you're probably going to go get people and bring them back to five o'clock. That's how cool it's going to be. So um, saying all that to kind of set this up, when I was a kid... And probably most of us have this in common. When I was a kid, if my mom or my dad said something, it was just true. I just believed it. It, it didn't matter how crazy, like I look back, especially at some of the stuff my dad used to tell me now, and it was insane. But when you're a kid, what your parents say is usually the gospel, right? So when I was four years old, I got kicked out of a Christian school. And um, that's not an exaggeration. I've always excelled at pissing Christians off. So I just got kicked out. So at four four years old, you knew I was on my way. Um, And one of the events that led to that event was uh, it snowed. Now, for those of you that are transplants into the South, we go crazy when it snows. And this is in the 1970s. We didn't have the Gore-Tex boots and all the really cool fancy stuff. And my, my family was like, ghetto and we lived in on the mill hill and so my mama would tie plastic bags around my feet so my tennis shoes wouldn't get wet which was awesome except for the fact if you got plastic bags on your feet running around the snow you fall everywhere so so my mom had left and my dad me and my dad were at the house by ourselves and I looked out the window to see my friends were playing because we didn't text back then we had a rotary dial telephone okay some of y'all remember that some of you have no idea what that is so, so I saw my friends outside playing, and I said, Dad, I said, I want to go outside and play. And my dad, looking back, being a dad now, he just didn't want to put the plastic bags on my feet, I guess. And he said, no, you can't go out there. And I, and I was one of those, you might find this hard to believe, but I was slightly defiant as a child. And so I told my dad, I said, I'm going. And he said, that's fine, you can go. He said, but, but watch out for the snow snakes. No, I'm four. I'm four years old. And, and so my dad said it, and it was true. And I said, I, I, at first, I said, snow snakes? I said, there's no such thing as snow snakes. I've never heard of a snow snake. And my dad said, yeah, yeah, I wasn't going to tell you about them, but they, uh, they only come out when it snows. <laughs> and I'm, I'm petrified of snakes, like snakes and spiders. They're, those are two scariest things, and a clown. Snakes, spiders, and clowns are the scariest things in the world. So I said, I said do they bite you? And he said, nope, they jump up your butt and freeze you to death. And <laughs> I'm a very visual person, so I could just see, woohoo, so, so I didn't go outside for like three days. I wouldn't go outside. And so I, I went back to my Christian school at the time, and Miss Moore um, was the teacher. I have a nickname for her, Satan. I mean, anyway, she was the teacher. And she let me sit on the front row because I was special. That's what she told me. So I was on the front row and she asked the class. She said, everybody go out in the snow and have a good time? And the whole class raised their hand except for me. She said, Perry, you didn't play in the snow? I said, no, ma'am. She said, why not? I said, it was a snow snakes. (laughs) She said, there is no such thing as a snow snake. I said, yes, ma'am. My daddy said there's a snow snake and there were snow snakes and I didn't go outside. And she laughed. She said, do they bite you? And so I answered the question and 
that kind of, because you didn't say but in a Christian school, all right? So it, but that remind, that story reminds me of, of like when, when we're kids, our parents told us something and we just believed it. And it kind of ties in today because about once a month for the past year, year and a half, I will read an article either online or um, in a magazine or whatever. And it's about a person that says they used to be a Christian, but for some reason, and they always have a, on the surface, it, it really does feel like a good reason, but for some reason, they walked away from the Christian faith and they're, they're not a Christian anymore. Um, they're, they're an atheist. And I heard a guy say this and it's, it's so true. And I just kind of put this in there. I didn't even say this the last service. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I don't, I don't have enough faith when I look at the world to believe that I am nothing, that I came from nothing, I have no purpose, and when I die, there's no, I'll just become nothing again. So we'll, but we'll talk more about that next week. Anyway, so they walked away from the Christian faith. And it, the idea is called deconstruction. And as I read all these stories or I'll watch the YouTube videos of the people, um, many of them who used to be kind of Christian famous who have walked away from the faith and said they don't believe in Christianity anymore. And what many of these stories have in common is that they didn't walk away from their faith. They walked away from their parents' faith or their grandparents' faith. It was never their faith. And that's why I tell people who are gonna follow Jesus, you've got to know what you believe and why you believe it. You've got to know why you follow Jesus. See, it's easy to walk away from something that isn't yours. It really is. Like if I borrow your car and somebody comes up and pulls a gun on me and says, give me your car, it's your car, it's not my car. I'm like, hey, take it. <laughs> but it's easy to walk away from something, in, but if something is yours, it's a little bit more difficult to walk away from that. Now, the reason I say that is because everybody in this room and it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your economic status. None of that matters. Everyone in this room, at some point in life, you're going to hit a wall. You're gonna face what I call a crisis of belief. You're gonna experience something in life that brings about some sort of trauma. And when I say trauma, I'm not talking about like, they left the pickle on your sandwich at Chick-fil-A, okay? Oh my gosh, I'm triggered. No, you're a snowflake. You need to toughen up, get over it. It's a pickle, all right? I'm talking about something traumatic's gonna happen in your life, like a parent's gonna die. You're gonna go through a divorce. You're gonna lose your job. You're, you're gonna experience something and that thing is gonna cause you to look at the church, look at Jesus, look at Christianity and ask this question, do I really believe this? Now, some of you have never been there and if you've never been there, that's, that's awesome. I'm really excited for you. But most of us in this room, if we were like really honest, like if we stripped all the religiosity away and we just got real honest, every one of us in this room have probably had a point or two in our lives when we've looked at 
This whole thing and thought, do I really wanna believe this or live like this for the rest of my, is it, is it really worth me giving my life to? Wouldn't it be easier just to kind of walk away and not believe? And this is where I'm gonna get very raw. I've shared this with less than 10 people on an individual basis, but today I'm sharing it with everybody. Can't wait to see what happens with this. But in 2016, I tried to walk away from Christianity. I did it very privately. It was not a public thing. I didn't make a big deal out of it. But for those that do not know, in 2016, my life hit a wall. I imploded. Like everything fell apart. And let me tell you, when that happens, and many of you know exactly what I'm talking about, you question everything. And so for me, I started wrestling. Now, this was a, about a three or four day process for me. Some people it's shorter, some people it's long, but I, I started wrestling with, do I really believe in this thing called Christianity? And I did something that I used to tell people not to do. I became emotional instead of rational. You ever done that? Have you ever made an emotional decision and later on regretted that emotional decision? If you're a husband, say yes. Okay, there we go. Like, have you, have you, ever, have you, ever, have you ever made an emotional purchase and you got home and you're like, why did I buy this, right? I, I had to, baby. I was at Target and it was on sinners. See, right there, just busted everybody. You made an emotional decision. I remember, <laughs> I remember I was hanging out with some friends one time and this, everybody was laughing except this one girl and she wasn't happy. I was like, what is your problem? She said, I, this guy asked me out and I told him I'd go out with him and I don't want to go out with him. I said, I can fix that. She said, how? I said, hand me your phone. She handed me her phone. Don't ever hand me your phone. I pulled his name up. I said, I'm not going out with you, exclamation point, send. I said, taken care of right there. By the way, if you need me to do that, I'll be in the guest services area. I'll be glad to send that text. Yeah, Pastor P got my phone. I don't know what happened. But wait, can, you, can you agree that when we get hyper-emotional that we lose our sense to be rational? That's, that's not a me thing. That's a human thing, Right? So I got emotional and I, start, I started listing things. Okay, I don't wanna believe in this anymore, so let me find some reasons to not believe in this anymore. And I started with the church. Now, let's just be honest. The church is an easy target. It really is. And this is, this is what I said. This is what I said. I, I, I don't know if you've ever said this before, but this is what I said. The church hurt me. The church hurt me bad, so I'm done. Now, that was partially true. But what I didn't put in was my stupid sinfulness that contributed majorly to that entire process. Remember, I was emotional, not rational. So I talked about the church, and well, you know, the church hurt me and so I'm not sure that I want to be involved in the church or, or, or be, or, now I'm pastoring one. Isn't that crazy? Isn't it how God, take, tell, tell God your plans and he will laugh. So, but I was, I was convinced 
that the church just hurts people. Now, let me just pause and make you a promise. If you start attending a church and you get involved in that church, any church, this church, any church, doesn't matter. At some point in the process, you're going to get hurt. Not because the church is bad, but because we're all broken, messed up, sinful people. And sometimes, whether it's accidentally or on purpose, we hurt people. Somebody, you're going to walk in. Somebody's going to say something and come at you sideways. Somebody's going to give you stink face. You know what stink face is, right? Somebody like somebody farted, and you got the you, you like one of those, right? See, some of you like you got hurt because I said the word fart, but don't pretend like you hadn't done it. Um, some people. <laughs> It doesn't matter if you're Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Charismatic, non-denomination. Churches are full of people, and all of us have been hurt, and all of us have probably hurt somebody in church. But see, I wasn't being rational. I was being emotional. And then I started looking at the history of the church. And I was like, you know, the church, church has done some bad stuff throughout history, like the Crusades, not our brightest spot in history. The Inquisition, where if you believed the wrong thing, they would take you out and tie you to a stake and burn you? Yeah, a little bit tougher than a mean tweet, right? <laughs> we meet people from the 1500s and we talk about persecution. What happened to you? Like we're in heaven. What happened to you? What's the toughest thing you went through? I got burned at the stake. What about you? Lost a couple followers on Instagram. It was hard, it was a tough day, man, I just cried. <laughs> Now, what I, by the way, just a side note, what I didn't do was acknowledge all the good that the church has done in the world. Like if it wasn't for the church, we wouldn't have orphanages. Because in ancient Rome, people used to abandon their babies when they were either special needs children or girls. And it was Christians that would remember that Jesus said, bring the little children unto me. And they would actually go out and get the babies that had been abandoned. That's how orphanages started. When plagues would hit cities, the pagans would leave and the Christians would move in and take care of people, which eventually led to the start of hospitals. Educational institutions, especially the ones in America, were started to help people understand and read the Bible better. If it wasn't for Christianity, the institute, many of our educational institutions wouldn't exist. But see, I wasn't paying attention to all that. This is what I said. Church hurt me, done with a church. Let's go on to the next target, the Bible. Now, if you know me, you know I, I love God's word. I'm a Bible geek. I'm a Bible nerd. I got a, I got a Bible verse tattooed on my arm. Bible says in Leviticus, okay, what other verses can you quote from Leviticus? Because don't hand me your tattoo verse out of Leviticus. Um, the reason I say that, it's not in the room, but there's always somebody online. And thank you for watching. You can log off now. But <laughs> the Bible is, is an easy target. Because let, let me just, there's, a, there's some stuff in the Bible that I don't like. Got quiet in here. Don't look at me like you all judging me. There's some, I love all the Bible. Then you hadn't read it. I get up some days and I read stuff. I'm like, man, I wish you wouldn't have said that. Like this, this passage right here. I'm gonna share with y'all a passage I don't like. Jesus said, but to you who are willing to listen, 
I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. Huh. Love the Bible now? <laughs> I remember... <laughs> I, I don't have, so there's so much of the Bible that I just don't, like I believe it, but it's hard to live it. Like have you, have you ever, I, this is mainly to the, ah, this is to everybody, this is second chance. Have you ever just got up and you're just like, man, somebody's gonna get it today. Somebody's <laughs> just gonna get it today, just in that mood. And I remember I, I went through a season like that where I was just kind of bitter and angry and I was just trying to work it out. And I happened to be leading a trip in Israel just a few years ago. And, uh, and there was a lady and she was, out, she was on the trip and this guy was trying to get her to buy some stuff, like some souvenirs. And she was kind of, kind of backing up from him. And I just, so I stepped in, I said, hey man, she's good. She don't want to buy you. And, and what happened was he said some stuff and then I said some stuff and then he said some more and I said some more and we got face to face and he pushed me and what happened was, I told him, we were right outside the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll never forget it. I said, if you touch me again, I will freaking bury you in this garden. <laughs> he backed down, which I'm glad because he had like 20 friends with him. I had nobody with me. They would have buried me in the garden. But I remember getting back to my hotel room that night and I was feeling pretty good. And God kind of started speaking to me going, man, that was, that was wonderful representation of me today right outside the Garden of Gethsemane where I prayed not my will but yours be done. I was like, yep, failed that one. Failed, I mean, just failed. <laughs> There's some stories in the Bible that are disturbing. Like when God, when the Israelites came into the promised land, he told them to go in and kill all, like when he said, when you go into a village, kill all the men, women, and children. That's disturbing. Now, I can explain that. Maybe there's another message for another time where I can actually explain that theologically where it, like I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying it made sense for that. It, the Bible is prescriptive in some of its stuff and descriptive in some of that's descriptive, not prescriptive. So, but, but, I, but I began to look at the stuff I didn't like and I began to look at the stories I didn't like and then I was like kind of throwing it all away. But then something happened. I was going 100 miles an hour away from Jesus and I hit a wall. Now, you know, if you're going 100 miles an hour and you hit something solid, it changes everything. And one of the best things for me was going through this process because see, this is what I love. God doesn't get mad when we ask questions. I grew up in a church that told me, you can't ask questions, don't question God. Job questioned God and God got mad at Job. That's not why God got a little upset at Job. God got sideways on Job because Job was self-righteous. That's what God got upset about. God doesn't mind our questions. In fact, if we ask the right questions, we walk away with faith being stronger, not weaker. But in my job, I was, I, I, was, I kind of had the church over here, kind of had the Bible over here, and then I ran headfirst into this man named Jesus. And he stopped me in my tracks. I've never seen anything like this man 
never traveled more than 50 miles from his hometown, yet he's known all over the world. Never led an army, yet we call him master. Didn't have a medical degree, but we call him healer. He, he's, he's had more, there's been more art, more literature, more things written about this man and dedicated to this man than anything, anyone else on the planet. His name is Jesus. And I couldn't deny, I couldn't deny that he existed. When people begin to deny that Jesus Christ was not a real person, you have stepped into a place called intellectual dishonesty. I'm not being mean, I'm just saying there's evidence in secular history and this is where people push back. They go, I believe in Jesus because the Bible tells me. I wanna pause. Number one, when Jesus was alive, they didn't have the Bible. They had the Old Testament, but they didn't have the Bible like we have it today. I don't believe Jesus existed because the Bible tells me. As a friend of mine says, it's better than that. I believe that Jesus was real, and I believe Jesus is real because a guy named Matthew was a tax collector. And a tax collector in the time of Jesus was the worst type of person that you could have in society, rejected by the religious and the non-religious. And Jesus walks up to this man named Matthew and says, follow me, which is good news for all of us because it reminds us that if you feel like the outcast, you feel like the person that's been thrown out, that's the person that Jesus said, I came to seek and to save. Jesus walks up to Matthew and says, follow me. And Matthew wrote an account of the life of Jesus. And it's the first book in our New Testament. It wasn't something that somebody told him. It wasn't stories that he heard. He literally wrote the story down because he was an eyewitness. See, it's better than just the Bible said. I believe, it, I believe in Jesus because Mark sat down with a man named Simon Peter and Simon Peter told him his story about him following Jesus and Mark wrote down the story from Simon Peter's point of view. I believe in Jesus because a man named Luke was writing a letter to a guy named Theopolis and, and, and Luke starts out his gospel by saying, I have carefully investigated all of these things so that you will know these things are reliable and true. And last but not least, there was a man named John who followed Jesus and he wrote down his account of following Jesus. The reason I believe that Jesus was alive and the reason I believe that the story of Jesus is true is not just because of the Bible says, but Matthew said it, Mark said it, Luke said it, John said it. They were eyewitness accounts. Now, what people do is they typically push back and they go, here's the problem. These stories were written hundreds of years after Jesus existed. That's, that's not true. Now, you can find stuff on the internet. By the way, do you know that you can find stuff on the internet to support anything that you believe Like, for example, I'm not going to ask for a hand raise because I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. But I don't believe in UFOs. I don't. Don't blow up my email. 
my cousin lives in Star and got abducted. Mm -mm. If aliens landed in Star, they would realize they screwed up. They picked the wrong town. Why are all the pictures fuzzy? Hmm? Why don't we have a clear picture? Why don't we have an interview? Why didn't somebody grab it on their iPhone, huh? Now, if you feel the need to email me this week about aliens, it's Cole.Farlow. <laughs> he would love to know all about your alien stories. I just, I don't, but you know what? You can find stuff on the internet that proves it's true. You can find stuff on the internet about the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and all this other stuff. And you can, if you don't want to believe in the Bible, you can find some, I would say, not very well-researched people that say, well, these books were written so far after the life of Jesus, but it's not true. Most accurate historians believe that these books were written within 25 to 50 years of the life of Jesus. So there wasn't enough time for legends to develop. Like, let's say I wrote a book, and I wrote a book that in 1982, the University of South Carolina went undefeated and played Nebraska in the Orange Bowl and defeated them 22 to 15. You know that's not true because, number one, they never have nor never will win a national championship in football. <laughs> number two, you would know that's a story about Clemson. It's not historically accurate. It... it even though it happened years and years and years ago, the historical inaccuracy would cause people to not believe it, but yet these books survived all the scrutiny that they've been put, up, put under, and we can still know that they're reliable. Now, here's the thing, though. It's not just that Jesus lived. Because if the story stopped there, not only would it be, I mean, I could admire Jesus because he taught some good stuff, and I could admire Jesus because he did some good stuff. But the number one reason that I could not walk away, and I'm, I'm following Jesus today, was called the resurrection. Christianity is not based on a building. Christianity is not based on a book. Christianity is based on an event. It's called the resurrection. And the resurrection is the reason that I believe. The resurrection is the reason that we can have hope. The resurrection is the reason that we can know, like we sang earlier, he can do anything. Nothing is impossible. And because he's alive, we have life in him. Now, the resurrection, the resurrection is so powerful that every Easter... Dear God, the History Channel. Oh, I love it and I hate it. Every Easter, there's always this theologian, <laughs> scholar, and they always try to disprove the resurrection. And they've came up with all these theories to try to, I was looking, I was reading through all the theories going, man, somebody's got too much time on their hands. But let me share with you, how many do we typically do? We're doing four today. It's getting crazy. Four theories about the resurrection that people have came up with to try to disprove it. Some people say, Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. People were hallucinating. We call this the hallucination theory. Now, because this is second chance, 
I'm not going to ask how many people in this room have had experiences with hallucinations. Go go ahead and tell you I have not. The only mushrooms I've ever done are on my pizza. That's that's as close as I've ever gotten. I did talk to a guy one time that said he was a he went to Clemson and he had trips. He did some acid right before he went in to take this test because he was nervous and he was taking the test. And then as he was taking the test, he said, "This is what he told me: all the letters fell on the floor." And so he was taking. So uh, so I hired him. He's on staff and um, it's great, but. Hallucinations are real. Like people see things or, or and you don't have to just be on acid. Like you can be sick or whatever and hallucinate. That's, that's real. That's a real thing. But mass hallucinations are not a real thing. Like if I were to say, hey, everybody, I promise you, there's a purple bunny rabbit next to me. Nobody would leave going, did you see that rabbit? Everybody would leave going, yes, something's wrong with Pastor P, Right? Mass hallucinations are not real. Here's the reason I say that. It's because we're told by a guy named Paul, who was changed by Jesus, by the way. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. Well, 12 people, maybe, maybe 12 people hallucinated. Okay, I'm, okay. And after that, he was seen more, by more than 500 of his followers at one time. 500 people don't hallucinate and see the same thing. Jesus was alive. Which leads to the second theory, it's the swoon theory. And the swoon theory says this, Jesus didn't die on the cross, he passed out. And when he passed out, they rolled him up in a, kind of like a burrito, and like, like, and like a dead Jesus burrito, and they stuck him in the tomb, and, and the cold, damp tomb revived him, and he was able to unroll himself from this burrito and get to the stone and roll it back and overpower the guards and walk into the room and inspire the disciples to follow him. I, the zombie Jesus is pretty freaking scary when you think about it. The problem with this theory, number one, the Romans were ex- experts at putting people at death, to death. They knew how to kill people. Number two, the blood loss that Jesus would have experienced during the beating before the crucifixion was enough to take his life. He was beaten with a cat of nine tails, which was an instrument that had nine strips of leather. In that leather were bone, rock, and glass. And when it would hit somebody's skin, it wouldn't fall off. It would attach and rip. Many people didn't survive the beatings before the crucifixion, and so he would have lost a substantial amount of blood before he even made it to the cross. When he was on the cross, he hung there for six hours, and when they pierced his side, blood and water flowed out to indicate that his lungs had collapsed and he was, he was dead. When they put Jesus in the tomb, he was dead. He didn't pass out. He died the death that we should have died so that we can live the life that, that, that he wants us to live. Which leads to the third theory, and I like this one. This the disciples stole the body theory. They actually, this is actually in a couple of the gospels where they were like, disciples stole the body. Let's, let's, let's get that rumor started. But, and this isn't a trick question. For those that have read the Bible, when they showed up to arrest Jesus, what did everybody else do? 
They ran, right? Like me and you, we out on a Friday night, they show up and arrest you, I'm running, I'm leaving, I'm, I'm gone. You can call me later, I might come bail you out, depends on what we were doing, all right? If they catch you and not me, <laughs> praise the Lord. But they say, they say the disciples stole the body. So this group of men, 11, there were 12, but Judas did that thing. And so now they're 11. So somehow they got, they, they ran when Jesus was arrested. They regrouped. They were like, you know what? We can take these guys. I mean, they're Roman soldiers and they kill for a living, but, but we can take them. And so these 11 guys went and took on a legion of Roman soldiers at the tomb of Jesus, go in, take his body, take him out, take him to Thomas's house, stick him in the closet, and they run out and they declare, Jesus is alive. Couple problems with that. The main one being that every single one of the disciples were murdered, martyred, killed because they could not stop talking about the resurrected Jesus. You might say, well, Pastor P, people die for lies. You're right. But all 11? I'm just telling you. If I'm one of the disciples and we come up with a story and I see James die and I see Thaddeus die, and I see Bartholomew die, I'm going, hey, 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 guys, just kidding, just kidding. He's in Thomas's closet. He's not alive. I'm going back to my cousin's kitchen, and he's going to give me a job washing dishes because I can't. But they, they, they couldn't deny the resurrection because they had seen the resurrected Jesus. Last but not least, the theory is that the, the Jewish or the Roman officials stole the body. So they knew that Jesus said he was gonna come back to life. And so the Roman Jewish officials, they go in, they steal the body. The disciples go to the tomb, he's not there. They start preaching the resurrection. The number one problem with this is the main opponents of the disciples were the Jewish and Roman officials. Had the Jewish and Roman officials had the body, as soon as the disciples started preaching the resurrection, they would have put the body on a cart and did a parade down Main Street in Jerusalem going, actually, no, here's your Lord, here's your Savior, he's still dead, but they couldn't throw the parade because they didn't have the body because Jesus Christ is alive. <laughs> and so, so when I ran into Jesus again, he changed me again. And because of Jesus, I can believe in the Bible because Jesus affirmed and fulfilled the scriptures. Because of Jesus, I can believe in the church because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said the church is supposed to be alive, it's supposed to be active, we're supposed to play offense, and we're supposed to teach the world what it looks like to love one another. That's what Jesus said the church is supposed to do. And the apostle Paul summed it up this way. And it, this, is, this is the best verse in my opinion, in the entire Bible that summarizes how important the resurrection is. Paul said this, and if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, we're wasting our time. We're to be pitied because we are truly foolish. But if he's alive, if he conquered death and he lives in you and he lives in me, 
then in Christ, we can conquer anything that this world throws our way. See, Pastor Fia, it's a great story, but um, I'm gonna need a little bit more evidence than what you discovered. Well, I'm, you came to the right place. Because in a room like this, I'll guarantee you that I'm not the only person that could stand and tell you that Jesus Christ is alive. There are people in this room that if you talk to them about their story, there's a time in their life where they were sick. I mean, they were, they were, they were sick and they were hopeless and desperate and he met them in their sickness and in their desperation and he healed them and because he healed them, they know that he's alive. There are people in this room right now, right now, that there was a time in your life where you hit a wall and you needed provision. You had nothing. You were empty. You had no one. And Jesus showed up and he met you in your greatest need and he provided for you in ways you could never even imagine and you know he's real because he was a provider for you. There are people in this room that know he's real because at the end of the day, if we're all honest, there's somebody in this room, you should be in the hospital today. You should be crazy today. You should be in a graveyard today. You should be somewhere other than this place today. But a man named Jesus met you in your darkness, met you in your desperation, met you in your need, met you in your hopelessness. And he brought you out of darkness into light out of desperation into peace. Jesus Christ, risen, King of kings, Lord of lords, and in him we can accomplish anything, not because we're great, because Jesus is alive in us. I'm just curious if there's somebody in the room today that could testify that they know that Jesus is alive just because of what Jesus has done in your life, because how Jesus has changed you, because Jesus has made you have hope, have peace, have joy. And at the end of the day, we know he can do anything. He can do anything. If he did it then, he can do it again. So let's sing that out. Jesus, I wanna thank you that you have made yourself so real to so many. But right now with heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're in this room and you need, you need Jesus to meet you where you are. You're in a place of darkness, sickness, despair. You need him to come, you need a miracle, you need a breakthrough right where you are right now right now just just tell him Jesus Jesus I need you I need you Jesus I need you to work I need you to do so I need you to change something in me I need you to change my life I need you to change my thinking I need you to change me maybe you're in this room this morning and you've never prayed to receive Christ You've never asked Jesus to come into your life and today you realize you need to give your life to him. You need to give your life to Christ. If that's you right now, I'm gonna invite you to pray and ask Jesus to come into your life. 
And I'm going to ask you to pray out loud, but not by yourself, because we are going to support you as a church family. As a church family, we say this prayer together every week out loud for the benefit of those who are praying it for the first time. So I want to invite you, if you know you need need Christ in your life, I want you to pray and ask him into your life right now. And our church family is going to support you by praying this with you. So let's pray this together. Just say, Jesus Christ, I know that I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I believe you died on the cross and rose from the grave to pay for my sins. And right now, Jesus, I confess you as Lord. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. We head still bowed and eyes still closed right now all over this room. If you just prayed that prayer out loud, but you prayed it for the first time and you asked Christ to come in your life, you just asked Jesus to come in your life, I want you to do me a favor right where you stand right now. I want you to put your hand in the air because I wanna pray with you. I wanna pray for you. I wanna... I want to encourage you, hands, amen, amen, amen. Anybody else? Hands up, hands up, hands up all over the room. Father, I want to thank you for the people that have given their life to you today. God, I want to thank you, Jesus, that you made yourself so real. And Father, I pray as they walk out of this place, they would know that they are brand new in you. Father, I want to thank you today for every person that walked in the room God, and they walked in this room with a spiritual limp. God, they feel beaten down. They feel hopeless. They feel worried. They're dealing with doubt. They're dealing with so many things, Jesus. As we walk out of this room, Jesus, may we know that what we sang is true, that you can do anything. You conquered death, hell, and the grave. And Jesus, we can know that in you, you will restore what has been broken. You will take what is old and make it brand new. Jesus, you are the one that can take everything that's wrong and turn it into peace. You can take mourning and turn it into joy. So we thank you, Jesus, for this. We declare that you are great. We declare that you are good. And we declare that in you, Jesus, the best is yet to come. Everybody that agreed with this said amen and amen. Thank you for being at church this week. Can't wait to see you all next Sunday. God bless.